Hello, and welcome to How's the Water, a podcast about reading and well-known, or maybe not so well-known, pieces of literature. My name is Sienna, and I'm joined by my friend... Gary. Hi, Gary. How are you tonight? I'm okay. I'm a little bit tired, but I'm okay. I've got my drink, my non-alcoholic drink. I've got some water, so I'm ready to go. All right, great. You're bringing the energy. That's great. I'm trying. I'm trying. (laughs) Well, what are we reading today? We have been reading The Tenants of Wildfell Hall, haven't we? We have. I really, I really, really enjoyed it, actually. I didn't Mm -hmm. know anything about it before we started, and I'm the biggest fan of it now. What did you think of it? Yeah, I really liked it. I was, I was in a similar position. I mean, Anne is the least famous of the sisters, isn't she? So I mm. never read anything by her before. And uh, yeah, I really, really liked it. I really liked how the book is structured and the story. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. It was really interesting um, getting into, when we decided to do the series, with the three sisters and we realized we didn't really know anything about Anne. And so she was a bit of like the mystery sister. And I was really pleasantly surprised with how good this ended up being. And I think she's my favorite, my favorite Bronte now. So she's really set the bar for me. Well, I'm looking forward to finding out why she's your favorite. I think we'll, we'll discover that as we kind of get into her life and uh, this awesome book that she's written here, the tenant of Wildwell Hall. Yeah. Yeah. We definitely will. Before we get into the book, do you want to start with the biography of Anne Bronte so people can get a bit familiar with who she was? Yep, sure thing. So here we go. So Anne Bronte was born on January the 17th, 1820, in the village of Thornton in Yorkshire, England, and was the sixth and youngest child of Patrick and Maria Bronte. In April of that year, her father was made the curate of Haworth, and the family moved into the famous Bronte Parsonage that you can still visit today. It wasn't famous then, obviously. No, no. It's famous now, yeah. (laughs) Uh, The Bronte children didn't socialise much with anyone outside the Parsonage and spent a lot of time together, wandering the moors and indulging their vivid imaginations through reading and writing, including the invention of fantasy kingdoms that we've touched on before when we talked about Charlotte in the last episode. Mm Um, in 1835, so when she was 14 or 15, Anne took Emily's place at Rowhead Boarding School and did very well there. She received a prize for good conduct. Mm-hmm. In 1839, she accepted a position as a governess, a position she was later dismissed from when the parents found her personality unsuitable for dealing with their spoilt, unruly children. Uh, oh, it's always the teacher's fault. It's always the teacher's fault. I can definitely relate to that. Mm. So she was so traumatized by this that her first novel, Agnes Grey, was based on this failed first job. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think we can relate to that because teaching can be challenging. It can. It can be traumatic. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So despite those difficulties, Anne tried again at teaching and became a governess for the Robinson family at Thorpe Green near York. She initially encountered similar problems as with her first job, but persevered and soon became highly valued by the family, even accompanying them on summer holidays uh, to Scarborough, a seaside town. In 1843, Anne secured a position for Branwell. That's that their brother. Again. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's their brother. Yeah. The, uh, the bringer of good fortune mm-hmm. as a tutor to the Robinson's son, Edmund. 
he quickly entered into a two and a half year affair with his employer's wife, Lydia. Yeah. When they were discovered, Anne was so embarrassed that she voluntarily left her post. Branwell was unsurprisingly dismissed and began a period of drinking and opium abuse from which he never recovered. Yeah. So um, I don't think either of us are big fans of Branwell, are we? Particularly you. No, he basically ruined everything and was a general failure in life, I think. An interesting note, um, if you go to Haworth um, these days, the Blackpool pub, which Black Bull pub, which stands at the top of the hill, quite near the parsonage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, still a, it's still a pub, which is open today. But they have like a sign outside advertising the fact that that's where Branwell used to go drinking. Drank himself to death. He drank himself yeah. to death in our pub. Come, yeah, come yeah. and drink here. <laughs> so come and relive those happy times that Jesus. Branwell had. Yeah. Great. Destroying his liver and his brain cells. Yeah. Okay. That's enough moralizing. Move on? <laughs> Let's go on. Let's go on. Let's go back to Anne. So in 1846, Anne published Agnes Grey under the pseudonym of Acton Bell. So if we remember, the three Bronte sisters all took pseudonyms, uh, the pseudonym of Bell. Mm-hmm. Um, and they used the four names, took the same letter as their real names. So mm-hmm. Anne was Acton Bell. Yeah. Um, encouraged by the response, she published The Tenant of Wildfell Hall in 1849. 48 and it was an instant raving success it sold out in six weeks becoming even more popular than emily's wuthering heights and i would say thank you to sienna for writing this very thorough biography you're very welcome uh thank you wikipedia and to a guy named michael armitage armitage who has a fantastic website called Anne bronte the scarborough connection i think he was in love with her because that website is like and 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 all over it but you know what she deserves a few fans I think. yeah yeah good for her and good for him i've not been to that website i have to be honest i might i might check it out i think yeah have a look because it's got excerpts from letters that people wrote about her and to her and um it, it is actually pretty um extensive website that he made um about mm-hmm. the bronte sisters and with Anne in particular particularly in mind good. what um, was um just so we can give him proper credit what what's the name of the website again Anne Bronte, the Scarborough Connection. Okay, and what was his name? Michael Armitage. 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 I would. I think if he's English, um, it's Armitage. All right. That's, sorry. That's all right. That's okay. All right. So let's get into this radical, juicy novel and how it pushed Victorian convention which people obviously loved because it completely sold out. That was something surprising that I didn't realize was that at the time that it was published, it did better than Wuthering Heights, which is the thing you think about now when you think of Victorian novels, you think Wuthering Heights, you think of Jane Eyre, but this did better. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really surprising Mm because you kind of, as we said earlier, you think of Anne as kind of the the less well-known sister. And I suppose attached to that, you sort of imagine her novels not being quite as successful as the other ones, but it turned out not to be true. Well, you know, there's a reason for this, which we will talk about a little bit later. Yeah, yeah. Let's just say yeah. somebody didn't have Anne's best interests in mind. Oh, I wonder who that could be. I wonder. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> to be continued. Yes, I'm looking forward to getting into that. Our story begins in the village of Linden Carr, Yorkshire, with a young gentleman farmer named Gilbert Markham. When a young widow by the name of Helen Graham, Graham? Graham. All right, Graham, excuse me. I say Graham. I'm going to try my best. 
That's fine. That's fine. That's okay with me. Helen Graham moves into the old unkempt mansion down the road and the community is intrigued and curious. She only has her five-year-old son and an elderly female servant for company and is evasive about her origins and generally rebuffs everyone's attempts to draw her into their society. She's vehemently against the consumption of alcohol of any kind and has an unhealthy attachment to her son, Arthur, whom she feels she must keep sheltered from the harsh realities of the world. Gilbert initially clashes with her on these issues, and though he finds her interesting and beautiful, he disagrees with her mentality and finds her unlikable. Helen quickly becomes a source of gossip in their small town, her only defender being a local called Frederick Lawrence. Yeah. And Frederick Lawrence is Helen's landlord, and he's the owner of Wildfell Hall. Young, handsome, rich, and he's one of Gilbert's friends. A local woman, Jane Wilson, is hoping to marry him, and she grows jealous of the mysterious Mrs. Graham and Mr. Lawrence's supposed fondness for her. Mm -hmm. uh, over time, Gilbert develops affectionate feelings towards Helen, as tends to happen in stories like this. And mm -hmm. he ends his flirtations with Eliza Millward, who's the vicar's daughter that he's been courting a little bit. Yeah. Not very seriously, though. No. Eliza and Jane Wilson spread rumors that Helen is no widow, widow at all, but Mr. Lawrence's mistress, and that he is the real father of her son. Now, Gilbert disregards this gossip, the gossip from the girls, until one evening when he witnesses Mr. Lawrence and Helen walking arm in arm after he just declared his love to her, like... 10 minutes before that. Jealous yeah. and humiliated for siding himself with her against the community. A few days later, he even strikes Mr. Lawrence with a whip and leaves him injured and stunned on the road. He gets into a fight with him and hits him. And... Yeah, he's pretty, it's pretty vicious, isn't it, what he does? Yeah, and that guy's yeah. like, what did I do? And he's like yeah. bleeding on the road and he just leaves him there. And only has no idea what he's done. And, he, and I think up to that point, you quite like Gilbert, don't you? But mm -hmm. uh, Yeah, definitely. So Gilbert avoids Helen's attempts to communicate with him until he eventually grows tired of the constant gossip surrounding her. And he confronts her directly, uh, saying that he saw her with Mr. Lawrence that night. And are the rumors true? And her response is to give him her personal diary to read so he can get the whole story from the beginning. And that is the end of part one. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. I mean, the novel's very clearly divided into three parts, isn't mm -hmm. it? So what were you thinking at this point in the novel? I was trying to get my head around, oh, she and Mr. Lawrence must be a thing, basically. I was thinking, you know, okay, how is she going to explain this? How, how does she explain this away? Maybe that it's all true, but there's some kind of good reason for it they've had some previous experience together and now they're very close and maybe they're together, but, but I don't know. What yeah. did you think? Yeah, I guess something similar. I mean, uh, you kind of get, you're kind of on Gilbert's side, aren't you? I think through this part of the novel, mm -hmm. even, even as he attacks Frederick Lawrence, mm -hmm. he, there's something about, about him where you feel like, yeah, I, I believe that he's right and he really likes Helen and, and is he going to get together with her at some point? Yeah, but you're right. The, the relationship between her and Frederick is so unclear because they're quite tactile with each other as well, aren't they? Um, mm -hmm. I think, which is, was not common in those days between men and women. So... Um, still isn't. They're walking really. in the shouldn't, moonlight shouldn't with like their arms like together and she has her head on his shoulder. So you, they're yeah. clearly very close, close enough for that. 
Yeah, yeah. So you do kind of wonder what's going on. What's the mystery mm. of their relationship? And there's also a kind of sense that she likes Gilbert and she's kind of drawing mm -hmm. him in a little bit. She's not, well, maybe not drawing him in, but she's not trying to dissuade him, is she, too fiercely? So you, wouldn't, you kind of wonder what's going on between them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and at the, so at this point, really, that's where, um, this is where the mystery starts to um, unfold a little bit, I guess, when she gives yeah. him the the diary now what do you think about Lyndon Carr and the it's a very tiny teeny tiny community um mm -hmm. small town and I come from a small town do you I don't know I do I'm from a place far far away and the town that I'm from is only about 20,000 people in it maybe it has 25,000 people in it now but it's out in the middle of nowhere like the next nearest place is like with like a shopping center is like 30 minutes away in a car down the highway. And I know that in a small community like that, there's a little bit of, there's a mentality of like there are, there's us and then there's them. Mm -hmm. There's people here and then there's outsiders. And I understand completely how somebody coming in could feel a bit ostracized from that, I suppose, or a little bit cut off from the, from the people there. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. Yeah. Um, and there is, there is a sort of large feeling of that. They, the, the women in particular in the town, they're not, they don't treat Helen very well, do they? They're quite jealous of her and jealous of the fact that these men, uh, Frederick and Gilbert both seem kind of pulled towards her. Mm -hmm. They're not keen on that at all. Um, it's a very, I mean, I come from a larger place than that. So I don't have that kind of personal experience that you have. But it's a very common theme, I think, that we see in books of this time. You know, small communities, outsiders coming in. Kind, there's some kind of mystery around them uh -huh. um, that eventually gets resolved. You exactly. You can, yeah, you see it a little bit in Wuthering Heights, I think, where the community obviously is even smaller there. Oh, yeah. But Wuthering Heights is, oh, Jesus. We'll get into that when we... That's in the next episode yeah sorry slight spoiler there um yeah. helen doesn't care about the gossip she has bigger problems to worry about uh, that's true yeah she doesn't react to it at all does it does she the person that reacts the most is gilbert yeah who i you kind of get the the feeling that he's grown up in this community um he's he's aware of the people and that their kind of faults and foibles are now becoming are manifesting themselves because of helen's presence i think mm -hmm. Um, she's kind of reflecting the bad side of the community to yeah. Gilbert, possibly. Nope, that's, I think you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So, in part two, Gilbert is reading Helen's diary. Yeah. So, basically, the story now is told from Helen's perspective. So, what we do is we time travel back seven years, okay? When Helen is 18, she enters society and is immediately taken with a gentleman named Arthur Huntington, who is charming and handsome, but also spoiled and selfish. And Helen's aunt is fiercely opposed to the courtship. He manipulates Helen's feelings for him by being hot and cold, even flirting with another woman in their social circle, Annabelle, who is gorgeous, bold, but also very self-centered. Mm -hmm. uh, Huntington and his pack of rowdy friends love a good drink and frequently entertain themselves in London at gentlemen's clubs and run around unchecked by their wives and families getting up to God knows what. Huntington in particular has a reputation for seducing married women and for being the ringleader of his group. 
It's just like, e, stay away, girl. Don't, don't get involved with him. Um, but Helen is blinded by love and marries him in the hopes that she can get him to change, though there are several red flags that she notices early on and ignores. That's true. And that's gonna, that decision uh, is going to come back and haunt her. So Helen realizes her mistake in marrying Huntington almost immediately. Yeah. He abandons her for months at time to go to London, leaving her isolated in their country estate, Grassdale. And when they are together, they have nothing in common. Helen enjoys reading, painting, and being in nature. And all Huntington seems to enjoy is getting drunk and being rowdy with his friends. She's too embarrassed to admit this to anyone, most of all her aunt, who warned her repeatedly against marrying him in the first place. When their son Arthur is born, Huntingdon is unreasonably jealous of the baby and resents that Helen doesn't give him as much attention as before. Yet he also expects her to accept his jaunts and seasonal disappearances quietly as a good Victorian wife ought to. So weird. Yeah, his behaviour is, uh, is awful. Yeah. I mean, I would say the jealousy the needy jealousy that he shows over the son is horrendous yeah that's the, that's yeah. strange for me he literally he's like you're fawning over the baby too much and i need you more and it's like it's a baby ah uh, you know i you know, as you know i'm a father my, i'm a father myself yes and, uh, i cannot you know i cannot imagine having that conversation <laughs> having that attitude <laughs> No, it's just you, you know, you love your child and you enjoy the attention that they get and how yeah, they respond. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you have to, you know, you'd have to be unbelievably self-centered mm. to be jealous of your own, your own child and the attention that your wife gives to it. Yep. Well, that's yeah. who she's, that's who she's got. She's got him. She should have listened to her aunts. Mm. Um, so once a year, his friends come to visit for a few weeks at a time and the house becomes party manor. Helen's best friend, Millicent Hargrave, has married Huntingdon's friend, Ralph, who likes her because she's obedient and never questions anything he does. The two women are miserable as their husbands and friends engage in drunken brawls together, gamble, and seem to enjoy provoking the women on purpose. One woman who doesn't mind at all is Annabella, who has married another one of Huntingdon's friends. His name is Lord Lowborough. Uh, she engages in affairs and questionable behavior herself and enjoys being the center of attention and undermining Helen in her own home. So she's kind of a, a bitch, basically. <laughs> she is. It's awful. Well, yeah, she's not, <laughs> she's not kind. She's not very nice, is she? No. I would agree with you. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, uh, Millicent's brother and Annabelle's cousin, Walter, is in love with Helen and does his best to rein in the behaviour of the other gentlemen. Mm. During one of the group's seasonal gatherings, he reveals that Huntingdon and Annabella have been carrying on an affair with the support of their friends, <sighs> and that Helen confirms this one night with her own eyes. Her husband isn't bothered that she knows, and from that day forward, neither he nor Annabella make any secret of their affection for each other, though he will not grant Helen a divorce, basically leaving her trapped in a cruel loveless marriage isn't that awful when i read He's that part of the book i just was like oh my god it's just awful yeah he's a he's an appalling man he's mm. one of the 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's sort of he sort of behaves without any kind of motive. And I think in some of the other Bronte books, you kind of meet these characters, and they can be very, very cruel and not and not treat women particularly very well. Oh. I think he's possibly the worst. He I is. Think. She yeah. she finds out that they're having an affair, and then um, she says, "Well, then let's just get a divorce." And he's like, "I'm not giving you a divorce." And she goes, okay, well then what are we going to do? And he said, I'm just going to keep having an affair with her in the house here. Um, Mm. And then they start carrying on like at breakfast and stuff in front of her. They start like hugging and being sweet in front of her. And it's just horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Now the final straw is when Huntington begins to corrupt their impressionable son, Arthur, who's only five involving him in adult gatherings with his friends, encouraging him to drink and swear. I know you have a son who's not five, but he's around that age. Can you imagine mm-hmm. him drinking and swearing? That's no, terrible. I can't. The, the thought is awful. It's unsettling. You know? It's just horrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So, yeah, I can't imagine. Um, yeah, it's child abuse, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. So she plans to run away with Arthur. She's not going to stand for this at all, which is good. She plans to run away with him and their elderly servant, Rachel, and support them as a painter. Um, but her husband discovers this plan, steals her money, and burns her tools. He even has a new mistress move in. He's mm-hmm. done with Annabella, and then he's <laughs> gone off and found another woman and moved her in. Yeah. yeah. The gall on him. Um, in desperation, yeah. she reaches out to her brother, a Mr. Frederick Lawrence. Ah, there we are. Yeah, you forgot about him. I'd forgot forgotten about all him. about him. Yeah, yeah. Who? Yeah. Totally was. I didn't even. I wasn't even thinking about him when you when we figured out. Oh, it's her brother, and he yeah. helps her take refuge in their childhood home of Wildfell Hall, which is the connection that she has to Gilbert Markham's um, village, essentially. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of her diary. It is. Yeah, yeah, and it's the end of part two as well. Mm-hmm. So, Gary, this is clearly like the meat of the story, really. It's the longest part of the story. What do you think people who bought this book liked or identified with? Because remember, this book outsold Wuthering Heights. And I don't know about you, but I find everything in this part of the book to be like extremely disturbing. When you actually read it, it's very graphic. And there's a lot of... Um, behavior in it that is just incredibly it's what is it I think Anne Bronte actually you know how Charlotte Bronte was wrote very nice and very didn't Anne write the word like slut a couple times isn't there some swearing in it she actually puts like swear words in it yeah yeah no no, that word definitely comes yeah she alludes to like wife beating there's a, a, a couple of points where it's mentioned somebody getting like knocked around People, the men swearing at the women, all kinds of things. And then the gambling and the, the drinking and the extramarital affairs going on and stuff. In Victorian England, this would have been like crazy. So why do you think people raved about this book so much? Well, yeah. I'd be interested to, to, to know that really. Um, I wonder, I mean, are people, were people reading it with a sense of like, this is what our social structure allows Mm. it allows women to be treated in this way were they reading it for that and a sense of like oh my god these things could happen and probably are happening to a degree all over the country 
Uh-huh. The the other thing is it's very well told and it's very entertainingly told. So even though it's quite dark, yeah. what's happening to her, the way that the book is structured all the way through is just very, very it's just very well done. The way the things are revealed kind of slowly, her kind of um what would you say, her realization that the how appalling the man is that she has married mm-hmm. that is done really really well because it's like a slow reveal isn't it first of all she's kind of left alone then he's partying with his friends then he's adulterous then he's jealous well no he's jealous of the baby it's mm-hmm. all of these kind of things pile up and pile up and pile up and i think that's done very well so i think it's probably a little bit of both the, the sense of it being a kind of piece of social criticism but also a very well written and interesting novel to read and entertaining novel to read as well and i wonder if things like that were going on more you know were things like that were a bit more common than we would like to think and maybe that's what people identified with maybe there were just a lot of people who thought like oh this could be my life or i know somebody that maybe is going through this or um, yes yeah it could it could certainly be that yeah i think it was probably more common than we know yeah. these days you know? and obviously things like this do can do still um continue today i mean we mustn't i don't think discuss this as if all of these kind of things only happened in the past i mean they certainly yeah. continue today in, in some places so i think that's okay. important to say as well now helen graham herself mm-hmm. is based on a woman called mrs collins so in 1840 she appealed to patrick bronte the father of the three bronte mm-hmm. sisters um, for advice about how to deal with her abusive alcoholic husband. And he said leaving him would be in her best interest. And yeah. then Anne Bronte was writing this book. And in 1847, this woman, Mrs. Collins, came back to Haworth for a visit and revealed that she managed to build a new happy life for herself and her children. So clearly this was done. Even though divorce for women was against the law in the 1840s, until the passing of the Married Woman's Property Act in 1870, a wife had no independent existence under English law and therefore no right to own property or to enter into contracts separately from her husband. She couldn't sue for divorce. She couldn't have custody of her own children. And so really, if you took your kids and left, you were kidnapping them. So it's just crazy how how the system worked. Yes, yeah, it's very um, interesting what Patrick Bronte told that that woman. Mm-hmm. It's not maybe not you what you would imagine a male curate in the mid nineteenth century to tell to tell a woman. I don't know. I don't know. I don't progressive know. Progressive, maybe. Yeah, it was quite progressive of him. I think. Yeah. I think maybe because um, her that woman's husband was abusive and alcoholic, and maybe his rationale was just that well. You'd rather your children grow up without a father than have them grow up with someone who's going to be a terrible influence and cause them to turn to that dark side, you know? That's true, yeah. And all the while, upstairs, you've got Branwell (laughs) (laughs) in his bedroom, taking his his opium. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if he was there in 1840. He may have been somewhere else, to be fair. That's true, yeah. And um, it's worth noting as well that Huntington... The, the horrible husband, is modeled after their brother Branwell, who was very handsome. He was sexually promiscuous. Um, for example, the Mrs. Robinson affair. <laughs> I love that. Interesting, really interesting name. Uh, yeah. You know? yeah. Um, but there were more. He had affairs with more people. I think he um, also had an illegitimate kid. With oh, did somebody he? I didn't know that, that. It, yeah, he had a, 
an affair with a married woman that resulted in a child. And I think it, it died. Um, okay. The child died. The child died in infancy, but this, so he was, he was doing this and um, Branwell was also an alcoholic. Sometimes to the point of violence, he would drunkenly roam the parsonage at night with a loaded gun, which I mean, that's not fun. It's not fun. No. no, no. <laughs> Have that in the house. No. no. So there you go. Shall okay. we? There you go, listeners. There you go, listeners. Not all Americans love loaded guns. You, you just heard that. Thank you. Uh, yeah. yeah, I thought I'd get that in there for you. Thanks. All right, let's start with part. <laughs> let's go on. So the diary's done. Yes, it Finish is. Yeah. Now we're and so we go back to Gilbert now, don't we? Mm-hmm. And, it, and what happens after he has read the diary? Yeah. So Gilbert finishes the diary. He's like, oh shit, I've made a total fool of myself. He knows that Frederick Lawrence is actually her brother and not her lover. Remember he hit him? He did. He struck him and knocked him off his horse. Yeah, I, do, and, I remember it really well. Yeah. And what's funny is that he, um, so he goes to apologize to Helen and reaffirm his love but because she isn't free to marry, she asks him to just forget about her because she is technically still married. So she can't get married again because yeah. she can't get divorced. Um, he makes amends with Mr. Lawrence for attacking him on the road before. What's funny is he goes to Mr. Lawrence and it's been a couple weeks and Mr. Lawrence is still in bed, like recovering from being knocked over on the road. People were such wimps back in like, we talked about this and Jane Eyre yeah he just yeah, touched you, someone you, a little bit and then they were like oh bedridden and he's like weak and he can't even write letters and he's he like sits up very weakly and can't even hold the quill in his hand i know i, I like mr lawrence he's he's one of he, the heroes of the story i, he I won't is. hear a word against him all right i'm so sorry but gilbert also he respects helen's wish to stay away but he does kind of cling to her brother a bit for news of her which is a bit if you were mr lawrence you'd feel a bit like he gets a little bit me or my sister well it's clear isn't it yeah <laughs> he's after. yeah uh, yeah he becomes a bit emotionally needy at this point gilbert i would say yeah he learns from mr lawrence that helen and her son have actually returned to her husband at grassdale mm-hmm. huntingdon has become gravely ill and his mistress and all their former servants have abandoned him leaving the house in disorder Yes. So now we are back with Huntington, who realizes that if hell is a real place, he's going there. Mm-hmm. If in fact he isn't there already, mm. because he's gravely injured as well. Yeah. Even so, he's unrepentant for his actions and continues to be cruel to Helen as she nurses him. His friends come to visit him and Ralph, who you remember is married to Helen's sweet friend Millicent, is mm-hmm. particularly shaken by Huntington's deterioration. Helen shows him letters for Millicent, uh, showing how Ralph's past actions have hurt her deeply, and this leads him to reform his life. Possibly the only character of that dissolute group of Huntingtons to do so. Yeah. Huntington finally dies a very painful death. Poor him. Yeah. I feel so Helen bad. Still... Yeah, I feel really sorry for him, yeah. Uh, not. And as Helen is still his wife, she inherits Grassdale as her own and is free to marry again. Yay. A year later, Gilbert hears a rumor. So remember Huntington's friend Walter, who was so in love with Helen? You might not remember yep. him. But I, well, I do remember him. because I've Yeah, he was, her, he was trying to keep everybody reined in and check and, you know, all the gentlemen trying to keep them 
in order for her. Yeah. So but there's all the time he's trying to sort of inveigle himself, yeah. isn't he, with Helen a little yeah. bit? Yeah, and she sees through that too, doesn't she? She's yeah. Like, yeah. She, yeah. She doesn't like him. She's kind of polite to him, but tries to sort of remain distant. Yeah, she does. Well, there's gossip that they are going to be married. So heartbroken that Helen never got back in touch with him, Gilbert immediately travels to stop the wedding, which is very dramatic, isn't it? Oh, we're back um, to the graduate again, yeah, aren't we? But, yeah, but predictably, he's too late. And the wedding guests are already filing out of the church when he arrives. The happy mm -hmm. couple make their grand exit, and it's Mr. Lawrence and one of Helen's friends. Thank you. I know. Uh, Helen does live nearby, though, and he learns that she is now very wealthy and far above his social station, and he doesn't believe that she would want to be with him anyway now. But a chance encounter with her on the road leading to an invitation to her home proves otherwise, and they reconcile, and by the story's end, they've been married for 17 happy years. And that's the end of The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. I love a happy ending. Yeah, it is great. It's just like um, Jane Eyre ends with a reconciliation and and love. So that's yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very happy ending. Do we have any thoughts? Speaking of Jane Eyre, mm -hmm. any thoughts um, comparing Helen to Jane Eyre? Um, I do. Yeah, actually. Yeah, I do think they're very similar in some ways. They're both. I think one of the interesting things about them is that they're both Christian. Yeah. But they seem to, they're not very preachy, I would say, about their religion. They seem to just live their lives to kind of a very strict kind of moral code that comes from Christianity in a kind of very quiet and dignified way, I think. Yeah. So they don't kind of impose their beliefs on anybody else. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, they will not go against their own beliefs and principles. You know, exactly. So they're both very, very admirable characters, I think. I would say that you get to know Jane Eyre a lot more than Helen because the whole of Jane Eyre is told from her perspective. There's only part yeah. of this novel is. So I think, I think that's, that's true to an extent. Mm -hmm. What about you? What did you think? No, yeah, that's it, uh, more or less the same with me. I think it's nice how they, they both manage to, to get what they want in the end. They both manage to be happy without mm -hmm. sacrificing any of their their values and their morals they they really stick to they stick to their convictions and in the end it all turns out well for them really even though yeah, they go through kind of a hard time in getting there yeah things sort of turn in their favor in a very yeah. similar way they both inherit a lot of money they mm -hmm. both manage to marry somebody they love mm -hmm. and yeah there's just a feeling of like okay now i'm happy everything is everything has um, come up roses yeah exactly and she uh, she helen never um yeah she could have had an affair with her husband's friend that guy who was so in love with her she could have done that and she she never did um because she yeah. said well no i'm not going to be adulterous he's adulterous i'm not stooping to that level i'm not going to do it and uh, she had a lot of opportunities to to kind of just sink down to that level and she never did no, no, I like her. She's great. Yeah, she really, she really focuses on her child as well, doesn't she? Obviously, um, Jane only has a child right at the end of the novel, so we never really see her as a mother. But Helen very much is a mother, um, and she yeah. sees that as her main, as her main kind of focus. Yeah, she's a good mom too. Oh yeah, yeah, she's a tremendous mom. Yeah, 
Yeah. Shall we do some fun questions? Let's do some fun questions. Yay. What better way to okay, so, uh, move on? Um, I'll, I'll start with one here. Um, Good. So you know how Huntingdon runs off to London for six months every year? Mm-hmm. And he do. keeps going back to that's his place. So if you could run off to another place for six months every year, where would you keep going back to? Not for like any horrible reasons, but just somewhere that you really like. You'd take a big family holiday. Where would you go back year after year? Well, I honeymooned in the Canary Islands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe to there, I think. So I've got very happy memories of mm. uh, the Canary Island that we went to. Would I have to stay? Because they, these are a series of islands. So I have a, a, a question for you. Would I have to stay on that one island or could I move around? The sure islands you could move well? around. It's, yeah. Okay, well, then it's definitely there. I'd like so to go there. on the Canary Islands for... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a group of them. Um, I quite like Spanish uh, as a language. I like uh, Spanish culture as well. And the weather is amazing. So, uh, yeah, that's what I would do, I think. And, cool. Yeah, like I say, I have, I have very good memories of, of that. Too. Uh, what about you? Where would you go to for half the year, every year? I don't know. I wrote this question and I don't actually know. Oh, I'd go, oh, I do know actually where I would go. No, I'm, do you uh, want a drum roll for this? No, it's fine. Um, I'm, it's, it's actually, it's really predictable, I think, if you know me. And I, d- I did mention it in the Jane Eyre episode that we did before. But yeah. um, I'd probably go back to Thailand. It's just fun. Yeah. It's, um, I know it well enough. I've been there quite a few times. And um, yeah, I could see myself spending six months in Thailand. And what would you do while you were there? I've never been to Thailand, so what would you do? Well, you have the beaches in the south, um, yeah. and so and the islands in the south that you could go to, or you have the mountains in the north. You've got Bangkok in the middle, which is fun. Uh, yeah, it's just it's the kind of place that it's got the beaches, it's got the big cities, it's got the mountains. So there's you know jungle as well, something something for everyone. So yeah, yeah, that's yeah. probably where I would go. I quite like yeah. it. I might change my answer now to there. <laughs> You'll love it. Yeah. You have a question for me? I do. Okay. So we see quite a lot of drinking in this novel, particularly from Huntingdon and his mob. So I would like to know, what is your alcoholic drink of choice? Uh, wine, which is convenient because I'm drinking a glass of wine. Okay. Tonight. Can you be more specific? Would you I... go for white, red or rosé? Red red wine but i'm tonight i'm drinking white wine which is more of out of um uh, practical practical it's for practical reasons i'm just getting rid of some white wine uh, <laughs> but usually it's red uh, yeah. and i i don't i'm not i don't drink very much these days but yeah what about you i would probably go for whiskey i like a nice glass of whiskey one last question so how would you support yourself if you had to drop everything and start a new life? So Helen decides she's going to be a painter and sell her art to make money for her son and herself. What would you do? Okay. Am I living today? Yes. And I'm, I'm me and I have all the technology that, that we have today. Yeah. Yeah. I would probably do something like, so I'm a teacher as well as a reader of books. So I'd probably do something like some kind of online teaching, probably, I think. Cool. Because you can do that from anywhere in Mm -hmm. the world. And yeah, you can, you can still kind of move around if you still, still need to move around and you can kind of almost build a bit of a career with that. Because I have absolutely 
zero artistic skills. So you wouldn't catch me drawing a picture, writing a poem or writing a novel for, for any money. So yeah, I would have to do that, I think. Cool. That's great. All right, moving on from the questions, we're going to look at a lesson that we can take away from the book, which Gary's going to read for us. So what do you got? Okay, here we go. So hindsight is one of the most important elements in The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. In the novel, a number of characters make choices that later on seem disastrous and foolish, and in some cases even lead to terrible consequences which they must deal with and correct. Helen marries Arthur Huntington against the wishes of her wise aunt, even when she has reservations of her own and becomes trapped in a worsening, abusive relationship with him. When her son becomes exposed to his father's damaging behaviour, she realises she must swallow her pride and take action, even though the extreme measures she takes to get out of the marriage puts her reputation at risk. Mm -hmm. Huntington himself leads a selfish, self-indulgent lifestyle, fraught with substance abuse and affairs to the point that it is detrimental to his health. He goes so far down this road that even as his health is faltering, he refuses to change his ways, still reaching for the bottle and abusing Helen, and this leads to his ultimate decline. Also, during these final days, he refuses to take any comfort in religion, something which could ease his suffering. Huntington's friends meet different fates in general. Annabella is divorced by her husband and falls into poverty, dying destitute and alone. Her ex-husband finds love with a woman who encourages him to live more virtuously. His friend Ralph, once by his side in his, in his most destructive habits, reforms his behaviour and becomes an honourable gentleman with a fine, happy family. Yeah. Gilbert Markham's first instincts are to trust in Helen and defend her against those in his village who appear to take joy in smearing her good name. A misunderstanding led him to shun her and physically harm her brother. Remember the beating on the horse? Uh -huh. And only Helen's kindness in giving him her diary leads him to the truth and to ultimately seek forgiveness for his actions. Mistakes and misdeeds are an inevitable part of life and growing up. This novel teaches us that it's important to remember that it is never too late to seek redemption and learn from them. And that even when things seem to have gone completely and disastrously wrong, there is often time to turn things around and redeem yourself. Yeah, that's a great, a great way to end uh, the book, I think, yeah. on, that, on that note there. Okay, so um, what happened to Anne Bronte after she had written The Tenant of Wildfell Hall? Well, I'm so happy you asked. So <laughs> following the deaths of her siblings, Branwell and Emily, in December of 1848, Anne developed a cold that progressed into consumption. And in May of 1849, Charlotte accompanied her to Scarborough, where she had many fond memories uh, in a bid to restore her health. She died there on May 28th and is buried in St. Mary's churchyard, Charlotte making the decision to lay the flower where it had fallen. So she's not buried in Haworth with the rest of the family. She's out on the sea. Yeah, it's interesting, though, isn't it? That she's yes. not there. Interesting. Interesting that you should say that. Because um, now remember how we said it's very strange that nobody knows who Anne is. Yes, yes. Why is that? I get a feeling you're going to tell us. I will. So, objecting to the scandalous themes presented in The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, Charlotte prevented republications of the novel, claiming she did so to prevent attacks on Anne's character. Ooh, Charlotte. I know. Anne's legacy gradually faded into obscurity. 
though she arguably accomplished more than Charlotte and Emily. During her life, she was the most successful Bronte. She had a number of her own poems published independent of her sisters. She even had hymns published that are still used in some denominations today. The preface to her second edition of The Tenant of Wildfell Hall is now considered one of the most awesome and powerful defenses of a novel in literature by an author. Yeah, I'm interested in talking a little bit about um, what Charlotte said about The Tenant Mm. of Wildfell Hall. So I have a quote here. Can I read it to you? Of course you can, yeah. So, in 1850, after Anne had died, Charlotte wrote, Wildfell Hall, it hardly appears to me desirable to preserve. The choice of subject in that work is a mistake. It was too little consonant with the character, tastes and ideas of the gentle, retiring, inexperienced writer. And this meant that subsequent critics paid less attention to Anne's work than her sisters. One, called Lane, even dismissed her as a Bronte without genius. That's, yeah, yeah. Who who needs enemies when you've got a sister like that? No eh? shit. Yeah, yeah. However, since the the middle of the last century, um, there's been an increasing amount of critical interest in female authors. And this has led to Anne's life being re-examined and her work has been re-evaluated. And um, I think that kind of continues. And I'd like to think that we are contributing a very, 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 very small amount to that. Yeah, Yeah, let's not forget Anne. Um, Yeah, Charlotte, what's that about? Was she... She just jealous. She had to have just been jealous because Anne was clearly um, up there in terms of her skill as a writer and her popularity. Yeah. Do you, do you think that's what it was then? Jealousy? I don't know what else it could be. I don't know. I mean, Unless it... Charlotte really was such a conservative little, like, oh God, that's really bad. We shouldn't. And that in that case, it's like, come on, Charlotte, can you not just... Yeah. Yeah, sort of moral arbitrator. Yeah, yeah. yeah. After she dies as well, it's just so, like, she can't... I sort of feel like, yeah, I mean, you've, you've written Jane Eyre, and you've done okay for yourself. Yeah, so, she did that, um, yeah. Yeah, so I don't, I don't really understand it. And what, what kind of gives you the right to suppress somebody's work, even if you are related to them? I, yeah. don't, I just don't, you know, no. I don't think you have that. Yeah, you uh, don't. Right at all, no. Well, thank you for yeah. that. That's very interesting. Yeah, okay. So I think we're going to finish in a minute. So just to finish, um, Sienna, you're going to read us a quote from the preface, the famous preface that Anne wrote to the second edition. So would you like to do that? I would. All right. So in the words of Anne Bronte herself, or as Acton Bell, I believe, um, she was still (laughs) under the pseudonym of Acton Bell at this point. I am satisfied that if a book is a good one, It is so, whatever the sex of the author may be. All novels are, or should be written, for both men and women to read. And I am at a loss to conceive how a man should permit himself to write anything that would be really disgraceful to a woman, or why a woman should be censured for writing anything that would be proper and becoming for a man. I think that's a very, very good note to finish on. What do you think? Yes, I agree. Let's uh, quit while we're ahead. Yes, definitely. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I enjoyed that. That was a really good discussion. Yeah, it was fun. I hope you, um, I hope everybody listening found all of that really fascinating and found Anne Bronte to be a a very interesting lady. I really like her. She's really one of my favorites. 
yeah, you've become a big fan, haven't you, over the course yeah. of researching this? Yeah, yeah. yeah. She was the well, definitely I, really cool sister. <laughs> I would definitely recommend to anyone that they, they do go and read The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, you know. Please read do. Jane Eyre and read Wuthering Heights as well, but also, you know, pay some attention to Anne's work because um, even though she has become reappraised, as we've said, I still think she gets a lot less attention than her two sisters. And uh, yeah, that doesn't seem right to me. No, she definitely deserves a lot more credit and a lot more attention than what she's got so far. So go read it and read Agnes Gray as well. We haven't read Agnes Gray, but this makes me really want to read it. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely going to read Agnes Gray as well. Yeah. Okay, so uh, we're going to say goodbye to all of you now and hopefully we will see you very soon for episode three. And what novel are we looking at in episode three? Wuthering Heights. Oh, yeah, we're looking at Wuthering Heights. We're, we're going to uh, hit finishing, finishing our look at the Bronte sisters by looking at Emily's only work. Okay, so hopefully we will see you for that next time. So it's goodbye from me. And... It's goodbye from me. Thank you for listening, and we hope to catch up with you soon. Okay, goodbye. Goodbye. goodbye.